The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, I don't know about you, but I really like what we've done with the place, huh? I think, I think we should keep it. I don't know. So at least for the week, we'll see how it goes, right? So yeah, we are we are so excited for day camp this week and for what God's going to do um, through the service of many people from our church and just in uh, in the life of, of the kids who will be here. So we appreciate, as Reggie said, your prayers really do make an impact. So thank you in advance for your faithfulness. If you're not here in person and praying for us this week. Before we uh, jump into the message today, I wanted to quick bring something to your attention. If if you see every month or so, we offer a, a, an update on giving in the worship guide. And you can see this morning we have the one from May. And I just want to say thank you um, on behalf of myself and the elders and the staff here. There were some people who gave extremely generous gifts. And our fiscal year actually ends at the end of this month. So there's just a couple more Sundays. We start over in July 1. And due to your generosity and faithful giving, it looks like we will meet our budgeted giving for this year. And so thank you to so much, to so many of you who faithfully give and sacrificially give, amen. That is, that is a huge praise for us. And if you haven't given, I love to say your God is doing some amazing things at Morgan Hill Bible Church. There's never a better time than now to begin to partner with what God is doing here. We really believe in, in the mission that God has given us. Let me pray for us as we dive into God's word this morning. God, we do thank you. We thank you for Jesus and for all that we have because he's alive, that he's come back from the dead and the resurrection is real. God, you know our hearts. For some of us, we came to church this morning excited to be here, filled with anticipation and joy. And for others of us, we walked in with a spiritual limp today. It's been a hard week, a hard month for many of us. It's just been a hard season. God, I pray that for every single one of us, regardless of how we came and gathered here this morning, that we would be encouraged by your word of the hope that is ours, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what our lives look like, but the hope that we have because of Jesus. So we ask that you would open our eyes to see you clearly this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, we are just starting this morning a new series that will take us throughout most of the summer, um, studying this book of 1 Peter. If you're new to Christianity, new to church, it's near the end of the New Testament. Um, the, the worship guide also has the text that we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at the first part of chapter 1. Well, a little over two years ago already now, when COVID kind of started, there was all these new terms and new phrases that were brought into existence, right? Or that took on new meaning. Like if you think back, if you went three years ago and explained social distancing to someone, they'd look at you like you were crazy. Like what the world is social? Like what are you talking about? Right? If you're, if you're a fan of the TV show Friends, you'll remember Pivot used to be just a thing that was a joke that Ross tried to do to get the couch down the stairs, not a thing that every business in the world was pivoting. And then we're pivoting again, right? Like Pivot took on new meaning. Everything's pivoting. And another phrase that kind of took on this, this concept was this new normal that we're living in. Right now, who knows how long it actually will be this way or what normal will actually look like. I guess we'll find out, right, in the next three, five, ten years. But there was this thing, hey, life just is going to be different for right now. And we're titling this series in First Peter, New Normal, because we believe this, and it's one of our core values as a church, that the gospel changes everything. 
The gospel changes everything. And when God comes into our life, when we believe in Jesus through faith, it doesn't just kind of be like, okay, now you get Jesus and you go and live your life how you want. But it sets you up for this new normal that your entire life is changed and now should look differently because of what God has done for you. And that's a huge focus of this book of 1 Peter on just this newness of life and what this new life in Jesus now looks like. And so we're going to dive in, and I'm so excited as we walk through this book together this summer. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. These first two verses are kind of the the introduction to the book. And we see here immediately the the author of this book is this man named Peter. Now, if you're familiar with the first first four books of the Bible, the Gospels, Peter is a well-known character. He is seen throughout Scripture as this man, he was a disciple of Jesus, an apostle in the early church. And if you know anything about Peter, Peter had really high highs and he had really low lows, right? So the Peter is the one who got out of the boat and walked on water to Jesus. Peter was the one when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? It was Peter who said, you are the Messiah, He knew, he saw that Jesus was the son of God. It was Peter who, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, preached at Pentecost and thousands of people believed in Jesus. That's this Peter. It's also this Peter who, as he was walking on water, sunk into the water when he took his eyes off Jesus, right? Which we give Peter a hard time about. I'm like, hey, all the other disciples were still in the boat, right? So Peter at least had something right going on. It was this Peter who, when Jesus said that he was going to die, and he came up to him and said, no, 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 you're not going to die, that Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. It was this Peter who, when the day Jesus was crucified, asked, do you know this man? Three separate times denied ever even knowing who Jesus was. Peter had these great highs and these great lows, but God used Peter, and we see him as a leader in the early church throughout the book of Acts, and then even afterwards. And so he writes to these people, this group of people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you're like me, you like geography. These are all regions. We have a map here, regions that are in modern day Turkey, kind of on the northern part of the peninsula there. So he's writing not to a specific city, but to these general geographic regions. We don't know if Peter traveled there, if he knew believers there. He probably had some sort of relationship with the people, the believers, the churches that were in those areas. And so he writes this letter to encourage those believers. I love in verse two, if you look at this, the whole of the Trinity is involved in salvation, right? The Trinity is this concept in Christianity that God is three in one. And notice it right there. How is this salvation received according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation. And I love when he, when he refers them, when he calls them, he says this in verse one, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, those elect exiles. 
Elect means chosen, set apart by God. This has to refer to their salvation. You've been chosen by God. And exiles in the Old Testament referred to people, the Israel, when they were called out of the land and God brought them into exile before bringing them back into the land. But he's not referring to that physical location here. What he's saying is this, is that because God has chosen you to be followers of Jesus, you now live in this world as exiles. What that means is, yes, you may live in a region, you may be born in a region, but ultimately that place is not your home. You happen to live there, but you truly belong somewhere else. That every single one of us who have been believers are spiritual exiles in this world. Yes, we are here, but our home is truly somewhere else. This is just our temporary residence. And we have seen this more and more. I think we felt this more and more in our world recently to realize that as we look around us that yes, this world is not our home. This is not heaven. As great as the weather in California is, it actually gets better somewhere else, right? That heaven is actually better than what we experience here. I read an article earlier this year highlighting it and I've just found it so helpful to think of a framework for this. And if you are older, you've seen all of these shifts happen within the culture here in the United States. If you're in your 30s or early 40s like me, you've lived through two of them. If you're younger here, you've really only known the last one as your present reality. But how Christianity has operated in our world and in our context is kind of pre-1994, it was seen as a positive thing to be a Christian. It was seen as a good thing. If you were an upstanding citizen, the cultural norm would be that you went to church on Sundays. Christian morality was seen as a good thing in our world. And just think back to like the old movies, the old TV shows, right? That Christianity maybe isn't preached, but it's, oh yeah, it's just assumed. They're going to church. They're doing these sort of things. It's seen as a positive, good thing in the world. There's been about a 20-year period from about the mid-90s to about 2014, where Christianity was just kind of this neutral thing in our world. It wasn't that everyone was against it, but it was kind of like, take it or leave it. If you want to go to church, that's your decision, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of your own personal thing that Christianity was seen as a, a neutral thing in our world. And in the last six to eight to 10 years, so really since the mid-2010s on, the, the culture has looked at Christianity as being a negative thing. That if you are a Christian, it's looked at suspiciously. Like, what do you do in that church building on Sundays? Like, what exactly goes on? Why would you give up your time? Christian morality is not seen as a good thing by society, but actually seen as a bad thing that hinders society. And we're seen as negative. There's question marks around us and what we believe and why we would believe it. See, the reality is we may not have acted like it 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago because the world kind of felt at home because it reflected some of our values. But when you look around now at the values of our world and what it's saying is right and wrong, I think we all can clearly feel that we are exiles in this world. That as Christians now, we are the cultural minority in our world. For many of us, this is scary, especially if we are old enough to remember when it was just neutral, and especially if you remember when being a Christian was actually a positive thing. It's scary to be now looked down upon when you're like, hey, it wasn't that long ago that this was actually seen as a good thing. But just a reminder that we now live in a culture that reflects how Christians have been treated the majority of time for the majority of the world. That for most of you, most of world history, I said that in the first service, not U.S. history, the world has existed longer than the United States. So I've been told, all right? <laughs> for most of world history, Christians have been seen as the minority 
in a world that doesn't believe in God, that does not believe in the values of Christianity. And a different type, it's now a different type of challenge to live and to represent God in this world that we find ourselves in, that isn't all about Christianity, that doesn't believe in the morals and the same things that we do. And I find for myself and for a lot of us, it's easy to complain about once was. Right? Oh, do you remember back when we could do this? Remember back when this was respected? Remember back when this was valued? It's easy to complain, and it's a lot harder to live for Jesus in our current setting. But this book from 1 Peter is to people like us who were cultural minorities, who lived in a place where Christianity was looked down upon, that it was questioned. And he says, this is how we are to live in a world like that. This is how we are to live as exiles in this type of world. Verse three, blessed be God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It starts off with blessed or praise be to God for what he has done for us in Jesus. That according to this mercy shown to us, he's caused us to be born again. That's kind of a term that's now thrown around in our world. Like, are you one of those born again folks? But it actually goes back to scripture. It actually goes back to Jesus in John chapter three. So that just as we are born physically into this world, every person needs to be born again spiritually. That we need to experience this newness of life that is found only through Jesus. And then in Jesus, we are born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. See, how is Christian hope different? What's unique about Christianity versus what the world has to offer? What's unique about Christianity versus what other religions have to offer? It's that we have a living hope, a living hope because our hope is based squarely on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as followers of Jesus, I don't know what your week has been, what your day has been, what the last year has been, But if Jesus is alive as Christians, we still have reason to hope. We always have reason to hope as long as Jesus is alive because our hope is directly tied to his resurrection. And in the rest of this passage this morning, Peter walks through three changes that are brought about in our lives because we have this living hope in Jesus. Three changes brought by having a living hope. First change is that with a living hope, we have a secure future. With a living hope, we have a secure future. Notice what he says in verse four. We have this living hope to an inheritance, an inheritance that is coming to us. Now, in the Old Testament, this inheritance that that they thought of was just the promised land that Israel would one day get. But now in Jesus, it's expanded to this new heaven, the new earth, the new world that is coming to us as Christians because of what Jesus has done for us. And when he thinks of the future, the guarantee that we have coming, it's hard for him to describe. He uses in words that kind of are saying, well, this is what it's, it's not like. Notice, it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, meaning that it's, it's permanent. It's not gonna go away. See, it's a word often used, actually, this word imperishable in scripture to describe God himself, that our inheritance is just as firm as God himself is, that it will not move, it is there to stay. 
It's undefiled. It will never lose this inheritance, never lose its beauty. It won't lose its value. If the markets go up or down, it doesn't change. It's the same for us constantly. This word undefiled is actually used in scripture to to describe Jesus's own sinlessness. It's undefiled. It is perfect for us and it's unfading. It will last forever. It will last forever. And where is this inheritance coming to us as Christians? Where is it? But how how do we know we can get it someday? Well, it says that it's kept in heaven for you. That God himself is guarding it and securing this inheritance for us. So what's needed of us to walk faithfully to him, but look in verse five, and we are by God's power being guarded through faith for this salvation ready to be revealed. The security of what we have is not just, well, I hope it comes, but it's actually a certain hope. See, we use this word hope in our world as kind of like a maybe hope, right? Like every winter, what do we say? Well, I hope it rains. Doesn't rain, right? But we hope it does, right? Like if you have young kids, I hope my kid sleeps through the night tonight. Mine didn't last night, no matter how bad I hoped, right? I hope, right? It's like, I hope the Golden State Warriors win the finals. Will they? They could. Will they lose? I don't know. That would stink, but I want them to, right? I want them to win, but it's a hope, right? Oh, maybe this will happen. And sometimes when we see the Bible, a hope, you're like, well, okay, maybe we'll get it. Maybe we won't. Who really knows? No, hope is certain because it's secured by God as followers of Jesus. It's kept in heaven and we are by God's power guarded through faith. And I love that because how do we get this inheritance? Is it God guarding us or is it our faithfulness to him? The answer is it's both. It's us working out, us doing our best, our part to walk in faith to what God has for us and God's power equipping us to actually do the very thing that he's called us to do. Salvation is seen in this passage, ready to be revealed in the last time, not just as a present reality, but also as a future experience. See, a lot of times in church, we talk about, salvation being a present reality. And it is certainly true, right? If you believe in Jesus for salvation, you are forgiven, you have received grace and mercy today. Right now, your life has radically changed because of Jesus. But there's also a future change that we haven't yet experienced. And so often we focus just on the present, the grace that we have today, the change Jesus has brought in our life today, that we just forget the future that we have coming, this inheritance, this amazing thing that God has for us that he has guaranteed will be ours one day. See, too many people, too many Christians live their lives so consumed with today that we don't even think about what God has for us in the future. We miss the value of what we have secured for us by God. I read an article a few years ago, and so I looked it back up this week, of a Filipino fisherman who was out fishing, and, and in, his, in his fishing, he found a large pearl, an extremely large pearl, and he hid it under his bed for good luck. And so he found this huge rock, hid it under his bed for 10 years. And depending on what websites you read, there's kind of conflating stories. One website says that his house burnt down, which I'm like, so it wasn't that good luck, right? If your house burns down. Some say it was because he was moving, but eventually he went and had this rock evaluated, had it appraised for value. And it turned out that this pearl was thought to be the largest in the world at 26 inches long, 12 inches wide, weighing 75 pounds, worth approximately $100 million. And he had it under his bed, for 10 years, right? He had no idea what he had and he was not living any differently, even though it was his all along. 
And as Christians, so often we have no idea what we have in Jesus, what is guaranteed for us in the future. We just live in total ignorance of what's to come and we become so consumed with today. So many of us don't realize the treasure that is ours in Jesus. If you are a Christian, I just wanna remind you today, the best is yet to come. As good as this world is, as good as your life may be, or for some of us, maybe as bad as it may be, and this is an encouragement for you, the best is yet to come. That what we have is guaranteed, it's secure in Jesus in the future, and our home is not in this world. We were created for something better, and in Jesus, it is guaranteed to be ours. Verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." See, the second change that's brought about by having a living hope is that with a living hope, we have strength for trials. With a living hope, God gives us the strength to endure the challenges, the difficulties that come our way each and every day as we journey through life, that God gives us the strength to get through them and he uses them in our lives. See, I really wish verse six read differently. I don't know about you. I really wish verse six said this, in this you rejoice because of Jesus, we are now exempted from all challenges, obstacles, and difficulties, and your life's going to be easy and perfect for as long as you live. Like I, that would be my life verse if that was there, right? All of us would be like, yeah, that, I like that. That's what I want, right? But no, it says you rejoice though now you have trials. Thou, though now you, you have challenges, and that's all of our lives, right? That's every single one of our worlds is that yes, we've been saved and we have this future hope, but we don't feel it often in the present, right? Because life is hard and there's challenges. See, in Jesus, we are not exempt from trials, but our perspective is changed. See, trials in Jesus serve a purpose. You see it there that serves a purpose, what? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. See, challenges come into our life to prove, to show to us that our faith is genuine. They come to grow us in our faith. He uses here, he brings up this illustration of gold to highlight the importance of this genuine faith. Gold in their time was the most valuable thing in the world. It was the most valuable resource. Gold would have been number one. And he said, genuine faith in Jesus, more valuable than gold. More valuable than gold. And then he says, and just like how you get gold, you have to refine it. You have to put it in the fire. You have to purify it. Just like that, that's what has to happen to us, just like happens to gold. That we have to go through challenges, have to go through the fires so that we would be refined and that our salvation would be proven genuine. See, the challenge of following Jesus when we can't see him, like how he says in these verses, is that we see the salvation as a future experience, but we know that God will sustain us and that we are encouraged as we see him sustaining us through the challenges of life. He strengthens us so that our faith would be proven genuine. See, something could look real. It could look genuine just on the outside, but as soon as it's tested, as soon as it's put to work, you could see real quick 
that that actually isn't real. It was fake. It actually isn't the real thing. And when Jesus tests us, it's to show us the genuineness of our faith. I was reminded of a story. My wife and I were actually talking about it this week. And so I'm going to tell it to you this morning. Um, It was a story from our honeymoon, actually, which is appropriate because today is actually my wife and my 12th anniversary today. And so, oh, thank you. Very kind. And so it's a story from, from our honeymoon. If you remember, we were, we were young when we got married. And it's kind of crazy, your honeymoon. We went the morning after our wedding because it's like this huge celebration. And then you're like, oh, I got to pack. I got to bring stuff. We got to go somewhere tomorrow. Like, well, let's, we, okay, that's the last thing on your mind. And so when we showed up, we went down to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And we showed up, I unpacked, and I realized that evening, I forgot my sunglasses, I don't have any sunglasses. Now, for those of them, like now in California, your sunglasses are like the fourth thing you walk out the door with, right? It's like keys, wallet, phone, sunglasses. Some people live like in the Midwest where it goes weeks without the sun shining, right? And so sunglasses weren't on my head. Like, oh yeah, of course I have to have my sunglasses. And so I realized though very quickly, hey, the sun shines here. I, I need sunglasses, But not to worry, in the evening, our first night there, they had kind of vendors come down and put out lots of different stuff that they sell. And of course, there are lots of vendors there with sunglasses. So I go up to one of the vendors. I see the sunglasses. I ask him, what what kind of sunglasses are these? They were blue, nice frames. You know, he goes, oh, these are Oakley sunglasses. So how come they only cost $15 then? He's like, because it's a great deal. It's a great deal. (laughs) I was like, all right, I've been to Mexico, but like, I know these aren't the real thing, but you know, like, whatever, I don't need them when I get home. I just need them for one week, $15 one week. Okay, here you go. I bought the sunglasses, right? I just needed them for a week. The next day, we're, we're out at the pool, out for a walk. I, and my wife, had, I think, was laying down next to the beach. I think I went for a walk, and so it's warm, it's sweaty, right? You're, you're kind of out there. I'm going, coming back to go into the pool. And I've been off by my own with my nice blue sunglasses on. And I walk back, and all of my wife looks at me, and she just goes, and I'm like, um, what, what? And I really wish we had a picture. We didn't, but my face was sweating blue <laughs> as the paint was running off of my frames, like dripping off my chin was just blue sweat, right? The guy had said, no, these are real Oakley sunglasses. They were quickly proven they were not the genuine thing as soon as it was put to use, right? And what trials do in our life is it's not for us just to say we believe in Jesus, just to say that Jesus is our strength, not to say that Jesus sustains us, but trials prove the genuineness of our faith. And as God walks with you through the challenges week after week, month after month, year after year, the purpose of those challenges is that you would become more like Jesus and that your faith would be proven to you to be even more genuine all the time. See, as Christians, our perspective on trials changes. And so whatever you're facing today, because the reality is we're all facing some challenge, some difficulty, some of us bigger ones than others, some of us, they may feel small, but in every challenge as a follower of Jesus, what we can ask is this, what, what is this teaching me of God? What is this challenge teaching me of myself and who I am in Jesus? What is this challenge teaching me an opportunity of how I can trust God more in my life? Because it's through the trials, through the challenges of life, that God refines us like gold so that our faith may be shown to be genuine. See, the reality is we so often don't want this, right? For a lot of us, we'd rather just be comfortable than be more like Jesus. We'd rather be light than be more like Jesus. 
But God wants our faith to be shown to be genuine. And so he will give us trials, challenges in our lives. Why? So that our faith would grow and be shown to be genuine. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was, that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. They were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, the third, the third thing about a living hope is with a living hope, we understand the blessings of Jesus. With a living hope, we understand the blessings of Jesus. It puts into perspective how privileged we are to live on this side of history, that we can look back at Jesus and see him as the fulfillment to all that came before. See, to help, to help his readers understand how privileged they were despite the trials, despite the negativity, despite the hard world that they lived in, he highlighted to them these Old Testament prophets. The prophets looked forward to Jesus. Far from removing the Old Testament from our lives, what we need to do is read it and study it and how it points to Jesus. And these prophets, it says, longed to know. They searched and inquired carefully, wanting to see what it was that they were looking forward to. See, Abraham longed to know of the one through whom him, how all the world would be blessed. Moses wanted to see who is this Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, who would come and take the sin of his people. David longed to see of the one who would come and reign on his throne forever. Isaiah wanted to see this one who would be born of a virgin and die the suffering servant for his people. Jeremiah longed to experience the new covenant. Ezekiel longed to see this new heart being placed in God's people. Daniel wanted to see the son of man coming in glory. Hosea wanted to know who is this one that God will call out of Egypt. Micah wanted to know who is this one who will be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah wanted to know who is the one who will enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey and to be pierced for our sins. And we could go on and on and on of how the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. Think of all of the heroes from the Old Testament, the stories that you grew up with. Think of David, think of Daniel, think of Esther, think of Deborah, think of Moses, think of Abraham. Now get this, every single one of them would gladly trade places with you to be on this side of history to look back at what Jesus has done for them. They longed to see the Messiah. They couldn't wait because they were, couldn't wait to see the blessings that would come. All of the Old Testament points to one thing and it only makes sense if you know what it's about. It points to Jesus. And he highlights how privileged we are in this era to know who Jesus is. The Old Testament is kind of like a movie that if you, don't know the twist at the end, the movie won't make sense. I don't know about you, but I love movies that it's like the last scene, it's this twist, and you're like, now I need to go watch it over again because now it all takes on a different meaning. One of those favorite ones for me is a movie, I think it came out over 15 years ago, called The Prestige. The two leading actors in it are Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. So right there, it's like gonna be a good movie, right? With those two guys as leading actors. But they are competing magicians 
in, in the world. And it's, the story goes back and forth of this rivalry that they had between one another and this disappearing man trick that they both develop their own places to. Like, how can you disappear on one part of the stage and immediately appear on the other? And Hugh Jackman's character studies how Christian Bale does it, and he cannot understand. How does he do it so well? What's the trick? He cannot figure it out. He studies him for years, and he cannot figure it out. And right at the end of the movie, you're open, your eyes are to see that Christian Bale actually has an identical twin. And it's, he lives in disguise. They both live in disguise. Sorry, I ruined the movie if you've never seen it before, right? <laughs> But he disappears because then his identical twin enters immediately across the stage and that's how this trick can be performed and the entire life is the illusion so that their trick on stage can work well. And you see it and you're like, now I need to watch the whole movie over again, right? Because now this twist, now it all makes sense. Jesus is the twist that makes all of scripture make sense. If you don't know about him, none of it will make sense. And once he is revealed, you're like, oh, that's it. Jesus himself in the gospels, after he's resurrected on the road to Emmaus, it said that he explained to some of his followers how all of the Old Testament pointed to him. So what is unique about Christian hope? What's unique that, that we have that nothing else in the world, no other religion of the world has to offer? For Christians, our hope is alive. It is a living hope that is tied to Jesus. Everything in our life revolves around him, his death, and his resurrection for us. And we, no matter what we are facing, no matter what you are facing right now, you cannot lose hope because your hope is tied to someone who is alive. And as Christians, as long as Jesus is alive, you have reason to hope. As long as he is alive, you have reason to hope. As one author put it, Christian hope is everlasting because Jesus is ever living. Our hope is everlasting because Jesus is ever living. So the question for every one of us this morning is, do we have that hope in our lives? For some of you, maybe you don't. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. It starts with faith in the resurrection from Jesus from the dead, that he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, and he defeated death by rising from the grave. And we too can have this hope that Peter writes of, of being assured of our future, of having a full confidence of being loved by God, security. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And for a lot of us, we have this hope, but we forget about it so quickly, don't we? Isn't it amazing how the problems the pressures of the day-to-day -day distract us from what we have in Jesus. Distract us from this living hope that is certain for every single one of us who are his followers. A reminder to you this morning is don't forget what you have in Jesus. Don't forget who you are in Jesus. Don't forget the blessings in your life for one reason alone, because of Jesus. No matter how hard or how dark your life may seem right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can have hope because Jesus is alive. God, we thank you that because of Jesus's resurrection, it changes everything in our lives. God, I pray that for those of us who came this morning and it, life seems almost hopeless, that today we would find hope again because it's not tied to our circumstances, it's tied to you and you are alive. God, I pray that you would encourage us today. God, we thank you that no matter where we are, 
no matter what we face, our lives are transformed and changed, not just because you died for us, but because you are alive and because you conquered the grave, each and every one of us have a living hope. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.